Peace be upon you. So there was a time when the followers of the Quran were leading the world in science, technology, philosophy, and education. This period is referred to as the Islamic Golden Age and took place in Baghdad, which was the world's largest city at the time. This period began during the reign of the Basid Khalifa Harun al-Rashid, who reigned from the years 786 to 809 with the inauguration of the House of Wisdom, Bayt al-Hikmah. This is where Muslim scholars and polymaths from around the world with different cultural backgrounds gathered and translated the world's classical knowledge into Arabic, as well as adding many of their own works on a multitude of topics to the collection. The House of Wisdom and its contents were eventually destroyed by the Mongols in the siege of Baghdad in the year 1258, but its decline started well before its destruction. At the time, adherents of the Islamic faith in Baghdad were hundreds of years ahead of the rest of the world in technology, scientific, and philosophical understanding, but somehow regressed back to the Dark Ages after its decline and eventual fall. The purpose of this episode is to see how the adoption of Hadith and the rise of Sunni Islam caused this regression in the Muslim world. For example, the Muslims during the apex of the Islamic Golden Age between the years 786 to 846 were able to not only determine that the earth was round, but were also able to calculate the size of the earth, the degrees of longitude and latitude of the earth, to an amazing accuracy, as well as making some of the most accurate maps of the world at the time. Then, from such advanced scientific understanding, they deteriorated to believing that the earth rested on top of a giant whale, and when the whale shook its head, the earth would experience earthquakes. The most respected tafsir among the traditional Muslims is that of Ibn Kathir. In his famous reference, written centuries after the death of the Prophet, we read from his interpretation of Surah 68.1 that the earth is on top of a giant whale. So Surah 68 verse 1 it reads, Nun, the pen, and what day the people write. And in Arabic, the letter N, when sounded out, is pronounced Nun. This word Nun in Arabic also has the meaning of a whale or a large fish. In his tafsir, Ibn Kathir lists three different interpretations of the meaning of this verse. Ironically, you will not find this translated in many of the English translations of Ibn Kathir, but if you read the original Arabic, it spends a good bit of text discussing this ideology. So this is from Ibn Kathir regarding his interpretation of Surah 68 verse 1. And it reads, The first thing that Allah created is the pen. It said, What do I write? Allah said, Write the fate of the existence, all that will happen from this day until the day of judgment. Then Allah created the whale, or noon, and raised the mist of the water and rent from the sky and spread the earth on the back of the whale. The whale was disturbed, and the earth was extended, and earth was fixed in place with the mountains. Verily, they are the pride of Allah upon the earth. It continues, so in Surah 78, verse 7, it says that the Quran, it describes the mountains as pegs. And we see that it's, it's Surah 78, verse 6 and 7, it says, Did we not make the earth habitable, and the mountains as stabilizers? And the, the word in Arabic, awatadan, it means pegs, like say for instance you have a tent, you put pegs down. In the Sahih Hadith by Ibn Abbas, 
collected by Atabari, it claims that the reason that the mountains are described as pegs in the Quran is that otherwise the earth would fall off the back of the whale if the pegs were not there to hold it in place. So let's read this authenticated Sahih Hadith. And it reads, And from his narration on the authority of Ibn Abbas, that he said regarding the interpretation of Allah saying Nun. Nun, he says, Allah swears by the Nun, which is the whale that carries the earth on its back while in water, and beneath which is the bull, and under the bull is the rock, and under the rock is the dust, and none knows what is under the dust except Allah. The name of the whale is Lawash, and it is said its name is Lutoya. The name of the bull is Bahmut, and some say its name is Talhut or Leona. The whale is in a sea called Adwad, and it is like a small bull in a huge sea. The sea is in the hollowed rock, whereby there is 4,000 cracks, and from each crack, water springs out to the earth. As you can sense, it's very difficult to read these passages and not start laughing hysterically, but it's even sillier than that. It, because it's worth mentioning that according to Sahih Hadith of Bukhari, Ibn Abbas, who narrated this Hadith, holds a special place in the eyes of the upholders of Hadith. This is because they believe that Muhammad made a special du'a for Ibn Abbas so that Allah would teach him the true interpretation of the Qur'an. So anything that Ibn Abbas says about the Qur'an, it must be true. So this narration about the whale and its names and the bull, this all must be true. So this is the Sahih Hadith of Bukhari, number 7270, narrated by Ibn Abbas. The Prophet embraced me and said, O oh Allah, teach him the knowledge of the book of Quran. And they believe that this doa, because of this, gave the proper understanding of all the verses to Ibn Abbas. And this is similar to the Hadith regarding Abu Huraira, who was the most prolific narrator of Hadith, who never forgot a Hadith from the Prophet. And it reads in uh, Sahih Bukhari 3648, narrated by Abu Huraira, he said, O oh Allah's Messenger, I hear many narrations from you, but I forget them. He, the Prophet, said, Spread your bedsheet. I spread my sheet. He moved both his hands as if scooping something and emptied them in the sheet and said, Wrap it. I wrapped it round my body. And since then, I have never forgotten. It is impossible to read this and not just start busting out in hysterical laughter. They believe the reason that Abu Huraira narrated so many hadith, because keep in mind, he never wrote down a single hadith. And people accept that because of this du'a that the Prophet made, that he was incapable of forgetting hadith, meaning anything that came from him must have been authentic. So let's circle back regarding this whale. You might say that, hey, I'm cherry picking. I'm picking Ibn Kathir and I'm misinterpreting him or I'm taking Ibn Abbas and that's not what he meant. But let's look at another one. This is Kitab Al-Kafi, uh, Volume 8, Part 6. This is Abu Abdullah has said that the whale which is carrying the earth secretly said to itself that it's carrying the earth by its own strength. So Allah, the Most High, sent to it a fish smaller than a palm's length and larger than a finger. So it entered in its gills and shocked it. It remained like that for 40 days. Then Allah raised it and was merciful to it and took it out. So whenever Allah intends the earth to be in quake, he sends that small fish to the big fish. So when it sees it, it becomes restless. So the earth gets engulfed by the earthquake. How did we get from the point of the Islamic golden age 
where they had legitimate theories regarding seismology and the source of earthquakes to all of a sudden believing that there was the earth was sitting on top of a giant fish that when a small fish enters its gills it causes earthquakes as recently as 1975 in the same location where the quran was revealed the president of the islamic university of medina in saudi arabia sheikh abdul aziz bin baz declared that the earth is flat and standing still in the translation from Ben Baz's book, page 23, it says, If the earth is rotating, as they claim, the countries, the mountains, the trees, the rivers, and the oceans will have no bottom, and the people will see the eastern countries move to the west, and the western countries move to the east. This was 1975 by the president of the Islamic University of Medina in Saudi Arabia. What caused this dramatic shift in understanding and regression pushing Islam back to the Dark Ages? As we will see the proliferation of Sunni Islam and particularly placing that of the Hadith literature over the understanding of the Quran is what caused common sense to go out the door and Islam to fall into the Dark Ages. So to put this in perspective, let's look at some of the history that got us here. Al-Maymun was the seventh Abbasid Khalifa, and he reigned from the years 813 to 833, so for 10 years. He was the son of Harun al-Rashid, who established Beit al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom. But it was under al-Maymun's rule that the House of Wisdom received economic support it needed to provide the heavier focus on scholarship among Muslims of that time. Al-Maymun's love for science was so great that it was said that his motivation for conquest was gaining access to the scientific text of the regions he conquered, and he considered those knowledge the real spoils of war. He regularly initiated discussions and seminars among the experts called kalam, speech. Kalam is the art of philosophical debate that Al-Maymun carried on from his Persian tutor Jafar. During debates, scholars would discuss their fundamental Islamic beliefs and doctrines in an open intellectual atmosphere. The House of Wisdom and this intellectual pursuit flourished under Al-Maymun's successors Al-Mutasim, who reigned from 833 to 842, and his son Al-Wathig, who reigned from 842 to 847. These were considered the glory years for the House of Wisdom and produced some of the best minds in history. So God willing, let's look at a few of these philosophers, scientists, polymaths, and really appreciate how many centuries ahead they were from the rest of the world in their understanding. One of the most notable figures was Al-Khwarizmi. Al-Khwarizmi lived from 780 and died at 850, and he was one of the heads of the House of Wisdom. It's from his name that we get the term algorithm. His book, Kitab al-Jabar, is where the word algebra comes from. And he was instrumental in introducing the world in the concept of Hindu numerals as representing numbers on a base 10 system. So historically, the way that numbers were represented is that each letter constitute a numerical value. And this is similar to Roman numerals and Arabic worked in the same fashion. Aleph would be represented as 1, Be would be represented as 2, and such and such. And this worked in the sense of representing numbers, but as far as doing calculations, doing algebra, doing uh, uh, advanced math, it gets quite challenging. 
So by translating these works, propagating them, and building on top of them, he really advanced mathematical understanding throughout the entire world. Another prominent polymath of that time is an individual by the name of Al-Khalil. He was a linguist, a philologist, a lexographer, and a grammarian. He made the first Arabic dictionary known as Kitab al-Ain, and this is the oldest dictionary we have to date. He introduced the standard harakat system for Arabic for the uh, proper pronunciation and contributed vastly to poetry, musicology, and poetic meter. His linguistic theories influenced the development of Persian, Turkish, Kurdish, and Urdu poetry. He was also a pioneer in the field of cryptography, who influenced the work of Al-Kindi, who we will look at next. His book, The Book of Cryptographic Messages, was the first book on cryptography and cryptical analysis written by a linguist. The lost work contains many firsts, including the use of permutations and combinations to list all the possible Arabic words with and without vowels. Later, Arab cryptographers explicitly resorted to Al-Khalil's phonological analysis for calculating letter frequency in their own works. As just mentioned, this influenced the work of someone by the name of Al-Kindi, who lived from 801 to 873. Al-Kindi is known as one of the fathers, if not the father, of cryptography. His book, entitled Manuscript on Deciphering Cryptographic Messages, gave rise to the birth of cryptanalysis, and it was the earliest known use of statistical inference in introducing several new methods of breaking ciphers, most notably the use of frequency analysis. Al-Kindi was a Muslim philosopher, polymath, mathematician, physician, music theorist, he is deemed the father of Arab philosophy. He wrote hundreds of original works on a wide range of subjects ranging from metaphysics, ethics, logic, psychology, medicine, pharmacology, mathematics, astronomy, astrology, optics, and further afield to more practical topics like perfumes, swords, jewels, glass, dyes, zoology, tides, mirrors, meteorology, and even earthquakes. <laughs> So we went from this person studying earthquakes to all of a sudden thinking that, again, the earth was sitting on top of a whale, and when the whale shook its head, we would have earthquakes. Being a polymath and working off the work of Khorzimi, he was able to establish mathematical medical expertise. He developed a scale that would allow doctors to quantify the potency of their medication. So these people were genuine polymaths at the time. Al-Jahiz, another individual, was a prose writer, author of works, literature, theology, zoology, and political religious polemics. In thousands of years before Darwin, Al-Jahiz came to the conclusion that there must be some mechanisms that influence the evolution of animals. He writes about three main mechanisms, the struggle for existence, the transformation of species into each other, and the environmental factors. He is therefore credited with outlining the principles of natural selection. He authored over 140 titles, and of which 75 are still in existence today. We have another set of brothers, known as the Banu Musa brothers. They lived around the years 803 to 873, and in addition, they were able to do geodesic measurements to determine the length of a degree on planet Earth, as well as determining the length of a solar year as 365 days and 6 hours. They're credited with inventing the first music sequencer, which was the earliest type of programmable machine. So all these main figureheads during Beit al-Hikmah all resided within the same time period. And then you start seeing a major decline in scientific advancement. 
And this really started in the year 847. So we have to ask, what happened at this time period? As mentioned before, the House of Wisdom really saw its heydays, its uh, apex, during the reigns of the Khalifas al-Maymon all the way to al-Wathig uh, in the year 847. So we have from the year 813 to 847. But then we see that it steeply declined under the reign of the Khalifa al-Mutawakil who started his reign in the year 847 until 861. So what was it about his ideology, his stance, and his predecessors that would have such an impact on the trajectory of knowledge and understanding within the Muslim world? The founding of the House of Wisdom corresponded with the predominant ideology of that of the time and region known as Mutazila which saw its height and adoption between the years 833 to 851. Their ideology had three major tenets. The first tenet is that of oneness, tawhid, and justice of God. The second is human freedom of action, and the third is the creation of the Quran. Today, most people know the Mutazila ideology uh, based on their arguments regarding if the Quran was created or uncreated. So in the Mutazila, they believe that the Quran was a creation of God, that it's a manifestation of God. But the traditionalist view, that of Sunni Islam, is that the Quran is uncreated, that it's been around for eternity. But it's interesting, their biggest impact actually was not regarding this topic. It was regarding their views towards Hadith. At that time, the majority view on Hadith was that the Prophet prohibited his companions from writing any Hadith from him besides the Quran, and that the Hadith in circulation were at best unreliable, but most likely complete fabrications. They had a certain disdain towards the most prolific narrator of Hadith, that of Abu Huraira. And this is the individual who was wrapped supposedly by the bedsheet and never forgot a Hadith. So they found this person particularly uh, problematic. And they criticized their contemporaries that focused nearly exclusively on determining the trustworthiness of Hadith based on the reliability of the Isnad. The Isnad is the chain of narration, and they didn't focus regarding the Matan, the content of the Hadith. So they would go spend all their time and resources trying to authenticate the chain of narration, and they didn't care as far as what the content said in the Hadith, no matter how problematic it was. And it's because of this they firmly rejected any Hadith that contradicted the Quran. So they had an ideology that was Quran first. They were fine with Hadith if it agreed with the Quran, but they realized you don't need the Hadith, that the Quran had the answers that they needed for their religious salvation. And this was the ideology of the Khalifa al-Maymon and his two successors, al-Mutasim and al-Wathiq. With this Quran first ideology, people were free to investigate scientific inquiry. And since the Quran did not conflict with science and reason, this allowed for the proliferation of scientific and philosophical understanding. But this was not the case with Hadith, which was in direct conflict with science, reason, and common sense. So how did this rise of Hadith come to place? So in order to understand this, we have to go back in time. For the first 150 years after the Prophet's death, the Quran was considered the only source of legitimate religious law. In Surah 6 verse 114 it reads, Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he has revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. So this verse shows that the only source of law we are to use is that of the Quran. But as the religion expanded, 
the adherents of the religion started asking questions that they could not find directly in the verses of the Quran. Interestingly, the Quran addresses this very topic in the following verse. In Surah 5, verse 101, it reads, O you who believe, do not ask about matters which, if revealed to you prematurely, would hurt you. If you ask about them in the light of the Quran, they will become obvious to you. God has deliberately overlooked them. God is forgiver clement. Additionally, in Surah 20, verse 114, it says, Do not rush into uttering the Quran before it is revealed to you and say, My Lord, increase my knowledge. But despite these clear recommendations from God in the Quran, certain individuals resorted to searching for supposed hadith attributed to the Prophet to try to clarify these topics. Ironically, this created the complete opposite, creating confusion and disarray in the Muslim Ummah because you'd have conflicting narratives as far as what was right, what was wrong, what was permissible, what was prohibited. And without any standard foundation, any consistent source like that of the Quran, you're left in utter confusion. Up until this point, the Hadith of the Prophet was not used as a legitimate source of law, despite being in circulation. This is apparent because there was no formal attempt to document and preserve the Hadith until the 2nd century Hijra. The oldest written copy of Hadith attributed to the Prophet is from Malik ibn Anas. In his compilation of roughly 1700 Hadith in his book Muwatta was published 150 years after the death of the Prophet. At the time of the publication, most individuals of faith still considered the Quran as the primary source, but used the Hadith to give color to the verses of the Quran, as well as guidance for topics that were not covered in the Quran. And this led to all kinds of new prohibitions and innovations that crept into the religion. The main reason that people rejected the Hadith as a source of law is because the field of Hadith sciences was not well established. With the circulation of many false hadith, it was unclear which hadith were authentic and which ones were not. Based on the shabby state of the verifiability of hadith, individuals resorted to the Quran and reason and logic to determine religious jurisprudence. As time progressed, the field of hadith sciences became more formalized and more Muslims were being pressured and persuaded to start accepting the hadith irrespective if it contradicted the Quran. And they would constantly be told the, the verses of obey God and obey the messenger as far as strong-arming them to accept these additional prohibitions or innovations that came from the Hadith. This ideology of Hadith first in understanding the Quran really took shape during the Shafi school of thought. And this was founded by Al-Shafi who lived from 767 to 820. Al-Shafi argued that the Quran needs to be understood through the light of the Hadith attributed to the Prophet. This meant that the Sunnah ruled over the Book of God and that the Book of God does not rule over the Sunnah. They also propagated the idea that if the Isnad, the chain of narration of the Hadith is sound, then the Hadith is sound, irrespective of how absurd the content of the Hadith may appear. After the Shafi school of thought came the Hanbali, founded by Ahmad ibn Hanbal from the year 780 to 855. Hanbal amplified the reliance on Hadith laid by al-Shafi with the understanding that one should always take the Hadith over the Quran if the Hadith is found to be authentic, sahih. They said that any teaching from Hadith should be taken over one's own reason and logic because we can be wrong, but the messenger was infallible. So they said, as long as the Isnad, the chain of narration is sound, and we can say that, yes, the Prophet made the statement, we have to accept it without any reservations. 
Due to this ideology, adherents of the Hanbali Mahdab focused only on the reliability of the chain of narration. If the chain of narration is sound, therefore the Hadith must be sound, and the understanding of the Hadith should always be taken over any other understanding. Hanbal argued that even if a Hadith was flawed, it is still better than a scholar's mere opinion. Followers of the Hanbal compiled the Book of Reliable Transmitters and the Great Book of Weak Transmitters as part of their Hadith sciences. So we can see this formalization of the Hadith sciences that these people are trying to say, look, if we can prove that the chain of narration is sound, you have to accept this information. And you realize, I mean, anyone with two brain cells realizes the absurdity of this. How many lies, misunderstandings, conflicts uh, arise by someone's interpretation of what was said 200 years after the Prophet's death. None of this is reliable. And not only that, it conflicts with the very statements of the Quran. The Quran is complete. It's fully detailed, has explanations of everything. And we should not accept any other hadith aside these specific words that God gave to the Prophet in the form of the Quran. These are the four Sunni Mahdabs that are in existence today. They're the Hanafi, the Maliki, the Shafi, the Hanbali. And it just happened that the 10th Abbasid Khalifa, Mutawakil, he openly endorsed the Hanbali school of uh, thought, that the Hadith supersedes the Quran. And unlike his predecessors, he was not interested in science and moved away from rationalism. He considered these influences on philosophy uh, that stemmed from the Greeks and Aristotle's anti-Islamic. Not only that, but it was mostly this ideology that revelation always trumps uh, logic and reason. And if you can prove that the Hadith are revelation that came from the Prophet, you have to accept it over any other interpretation of your logic, reason, and science. So you have all these false fabrications being attributed to the Prophet, and people had to throw away their reason, their logic, what their eyes were showing them, what the data was showing them, to accept this nonsense. And this pushed Islam into the Dark Ages. Al-Mutawakil and his successors violently persecuted any Muslim and non-Muslim they deemed unorthodox to their Sunni ideology. This included the top scholars of the House of Wisdom. For instance, it's documented that Al-Kindi was beaten and his library was confiscated and he died a lonely man in Baghdad during the reign of Al-Mutamid who reigned from 870 to 892. Meaning their top scholar, their top brass, the top contributor to science, technology, cryptography was beaten, had his library confiscated, and died a lonely, penniless individual. This shift in ideology pushed the adherents of Islam from the most advanced forward-thinking group of the people to the Dark Ages. Rather than a Quran-first ideology, the victors accepted a worldview that put the supposed teachings of the Prophet over the words of God in the Quran. Their ideology is that if the Isnad, the chain of narration is sound, then it doesn't matter how illogical the Hadith is, that it should be considered irrefutable truth. That even if it clearly contradicts the Quran, that you're still supposed to uphold it. And it's this abandonment of the Quran that caused the Sunnis at large and the Islamic world at large to go into the Dark Ages. The most revered works by traditionalists is that of the collection, the canonization of the uh, Hadith literature. 
and they have the Sita. These are the six authentic Hadith books, with the most notable being that of Bukhari and then after that Muslim. And it's not a coincidence that Bukhari published his works, his volumes of Sahih Hadith in the year 846, and Muslim was his pupil. So these all came to fruition after the decline of this Quran-first ideology and the adoption of Sunni Islam. And it's in these hadith that you see such uh, concepts that are completely contradictory and a mockery to the religion and to science and reason. For instance, in Sahih Bukhari 3199, it reads, The Prophet asked me at sunset, Do you know where the sun goes at the time of sunset? I replied, Allah and his apostle know better. He said, It goes till it prostrates itself underneath the throne and takes the permission to rise again. So we went from a round earth model now to people believing that the world is flat, that the sun, when it declines, it's sitting under the throne of God until it's given permission to rise again. In regards to medicine, we have another hadith. This is hadith from Sahih Bukhari 3320. It is narrated by no other than Abu Huraira. It says, The Prophet said, If a housefly falls in the drink of any one of you, he should dip it in the drink and take it out. For one of its wings has the disease and the other has the cure for the disease. Do you know how many people who studied medicine and were adherents of Islam read this hadith and renounced the religion? They said, This is absurd. How can you say that, for instance, if a fly falls in your drink, you're supposed to dip the whole fly into the drink because one wing contains the, the disease, the other one contains the cure. It continues. This is Sahih Bukhari 5688, narrated again by Abu Huraira. It says, I heard Allah's messenger saying, there is healing in black cumin for all diseases except death. So if one eats black cumin, that this should save them from every single disease except that of death. Again, this is the nonsense that is propagating in the supposed Sahih Hadith of the most revered uh, uh, collection by Muslim masses, by the Sunnis. Here's another one. Uh, this is Sahih Bukhari 5445. It says, He who eats seven ajwa dates every morning will not be affected by poison or magic on the day he eats them. So I want someone to do this. I want a traditionalist to go and have ajwa dates every day, I guess there's, there must eat seven of them, and show that they can drink any poison and not be affected by this. Because this would be amazing if that was the case. Again, they want people to throw out their logic, reason, common sense, and accept this mockery of the religion. This is a direct insult to the Prophet, who spent his entire life existence to deliver this Quran, the words of God, for mankind. And what did they do? They threw it away to accept this garbage. And there's a laundry list of these silly hadith. Here's another one. This is Sahih Bukhari 3329. It says, Allah's messenger said, the first portent of the hour will be the fire that will bring together the people from the east to the west. The first meal of the people in paradise will be extra lobe of uh, fish liver. As for the resemblance of the child to the parents, if a man has sexual intercourse with his wife and gets discharged first, so in essence ejaculates, the child will resemble the father. And if the woman gets discharged first, the child will resemble her. Please, someone institute the scientific study to see if this is true. Let's get this in the Lancet. Let's get John Hopkins on board. Let's figure this out. Is this what determines the baby's gender? Ironically, it actually says it in the Quran. 
that the semen is what determines the baby's gender. But because, again, of this nonsense, people have walked away from advancement to regression, from having clarity to having uh, confusion. And this is what happens when you accept other sources as a source of law aside from that of the Quran. We have one last one. This is from Sahih Bukhari 3326, and it's regarding the height of the human. Again, this is narrated by no other than Abu Huraira. It says, The Prophet said, Allah created Adam, making him 60 cubits tall. And it ends, it says, People have been decreasing in stature since Adam's creation. So according to this hadith, the statement is that Allah's messenger, the Prophet, claimed that Adam was 60 cubits tall, and since then, every progressive human being has been getting progressively shorter. Does this correspond with the fossil records? Are we seeing early humans being exceptionally taller and then becoming shorter in time? This has no bearing in science, in reason, and it's utter nonsense that people have accepted instead of the beautiful words of God in the Quran. In Surah 5, verse 50, it reads, Is it the law of the days of ignorance that they seek to uphold? Whose law is better than God's for those who have attained certainty? Surah 4, verse 60 says, Have you noted those who claim that they believe in what was revealed to you and what was revealed before you, then uphold the unjust laws of their idols? They were commanded to reject such laws. Indeed, it is the devil's wish to lead them far astray. And we're going to end with one verse that we read a lot, but it has to do with the testimony of the messenger against his own people. And this is in Surah 25, verse 27. It says, the day will come when the transgressor will bite his hands in anguish and say, at last, I wish I had followed the path of the messenger. At last, woe to me, I wish I did not take that person as a friend. He has led me away from the message after it came to me. Indeed, the devil lets down his human victims. And the messenger said, this is the messenger's testimony on the day of resurrection against his people. The messenger said, My Lord, my people have deserted this Quran. So if we want to follow the path of the messenger, we have to follow only the words of God in the Quran. The second we follow some other source, no matter how right it may appear, God is telling us we're no longer on his path. We have set up a partner next to God. And we have roughly 1,300 years of history to show that this path is not leading to good outcomes. It's not leading to advancement in science and technology and understanding in liberties of human beings. It's leading individuals in the wrong directions in the path of Satan. God willing, let's take heed. Let's go back to following the Quran alone. Let's eradicate from false understandings that have crept in, that have become a secondary source of law, oftentimes superseding the words of God and the Quran. Let's not have only a Quran-first understanding of our religion, but a Quran-only understanding of our religion. And God willing, God can get us back on the right path. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions or want to get in contact, please join us on our Discord server. The invite link is below. We have a bustling community of like-minded individuals who want to uh, study the Quran and love God with all their heart, all their mind, and all their soul. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, you can download the Quran study app on the iOS app store. And if you want more information in general, you can check out chroniclabs.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.